Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. back, my friends, on the Mocking Cast. I'm so glad to be with you. We've got some really fun things planned. I hope everyone got to listen to the Deja Vu episode, which I think Ethan and TJ, who does the engineering for us, did an absolutely amazing job, I think. Um, yeah, top to bottom, if you haven't gotten to hear that one, it's like it's like Mockingbird does This American Life, uh, RJ, your, sort of your favorite show. I almost feel like you should be narrating it, but Ethan's voice um, uh, far out uh, matches uh, even yours, I think, in terms of its dulcet tones. Um, Don't point out the obvious. It's- it's hurtful. It's painful. <laughs> well, how are you guys today? Good, you know, at, back at work. Like, it's still hot, you know? I mean, it's Houston. We're we're good. Moving along. Yeah. Move, moving along. Moving right along, as the Muppets say. What about you, Arch? We're doing well, but just had a very busy, um, busy weekend. Joyful weekend. Uh, did a wedding, which was really, really fun. But that always, uh, you know... Um, it requires some some energy, obviously. And then our little boy, our littlest boy, Marshall, turned two on Sunday. So had a big party uh, for him at our house. Smoked a brisket in true Texas fashion. But yeah, just a, a, it's a busy, it's a, it's a joyful time, but a busy time. So I'm, I'm a little, uh, I, I have to catch up on some sleep, I think, at some point, maybe this mm. weekend. Well, I have to share that uh, we saw the video that your wife posted of Marshall, who just turned two, telling the camera that he just turned two and speaking in, in, a, in a sentence and our little son who just turned two as well who can cannot speak even remotely uh we like, you know, why aren't you more like marshall what's wrong with this child oh, yeah, so we, yet we po- again posted that as all parents do to judge as everyone does on facebook to judge other people and yeah. have them feel um less secure and hopeful about their own life so Message received. It sounds well, like, which yeah. I'm glad please about. let Jamie know that we have we felt condemned. Just not 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 broadly. We felt very <laughs> specifically <laughs> condemned by that action. So, uh, thanks thanks for nothing. Perfect. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Well, I'm glad you did a wedding this uh, weekend because we're actually going to be talking a little bit about relationships today, and we're going to start with this kind of unbelievable piece that appeared uh, in the New York Times, the Modern Love column, which we from which we draw quite a bit, uh, by Brooke Williams called "Honey, I Swept the Floor." This one um, was, uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, Closing the whirlpool's door with an exaggerated swagger, Christopher rolled down his Oxford sleeves and said, "Just unloaded the dishwasher." I stared at him. I had loaded the dishwasher that same day without feeling the need to tell anyone. I have heard him, my husband, tell clients, if you fail to define your brand, your competition will. It took me a while to realize that he was applying the principles of branding to our marriage. Christopher and I both have jobs, sharing household duties and responsibilities for our two children. In our sane moments, we appreciate each other's contributions. But when the chaos of our life gets to be too much, we turn on each other. After our son was born, there was so much to do and so little time that everything turned into a negotiation. Whose turn it was to sleep in, who got a night out with friends, etc.? 
We continued to divvy up tasks randomly as we always had, but the negotiations grew increasingly contentious. Without any division of labor or set roles, we each thought we were doing everything because we were. While he never actually came out and said, I do more than you, he didn't need to. By consistently claiming credit for everything he did, he was dominating the dialogue in our new domestic world order and positioning himself as the winner in the who is doing more fight. By the time I figured this out, he had already captured a significant amount of brand mind share. Whose day was harder? Who was responsible for cleaning the bottom of the garbage can? All of these conflicts could be branded or rebranded to his advantage. One friend told me her husband had branded her the quote-unquote expert because she is a psychologist to justify deferring to her with decisions involving their children's education. Uh, I finally realized he was just citing my PhD to get out of the drudgery of dealing with school issues or having to read a parenting book, she said. Um, Branding was even at the foundation of Christopher's parenting style. He introduced lofty public service campaigns about the importance of consistent bedtimes that lasted until it was my night to go out with friends. On those evenings, he'd host movie dinners where nobody got to bed on time or brush their teeth as he cultivated his dad is more fun sub-brand, distinguishing himself from my more practical brand of routines, eating your vegetables, and how do you know until you've tried it slogans. Now, this is a very comfortable area for us. We're talking about scorekeeping in marriage, scorekeeping in relationships. And Brooke and her husband sound like they're very much in the thick of it. I think it is kind of a, a novel way of, uh, of sort of, 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 t- of phrasing it all in terms of branding. You know, uh, my, when my, my father talks about sort of grace in relationships, he always talks about the mythologies we bring into marriage that, uh, you know, he's the responsible one. She's the, uh, you know, the artist or, you know, he is uh, the, uh, the one who's bad with money and she is the one who it makes wise decisions. Uh, that these mythologies can become hardened into laws that we are constantly uh, f- foisting on each other and imputing, in fact, to each other. But before we go into the nitty-gritty here, which we, there's, there's no way we can't, um, what do you guys think of this article? I'm so worried for Christopher and Brooke, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of this yes, is very right. Like, I'm like, when, when will you say, you know, I, we were divorced two years ago and my I, life has exactly, gotten so much better. Ex- <laughs> yeah. I kept like paging down to be like, where's the divorce? Where's the divorce? Yes. I mean, yes. I, I will say the negotiation stuff, I think, is very familiar and I hope in every marriage and not just mine. Um you know, and especially she's she pinpoints brilliantly that that seems to happen when we bring children in. Um, you know, I don't remember a lot of negotiating pre-children. And I can remember a lot of advice about negotiation after we had kids from other couples. Like, I can remember being told, like, well, one Saturday you should sleep in and then the next Saturday he should sleep, you know, kind of thing. And that always felt a little... Um, it felt very practical if you wanted more sleep, but it always felt a little weird to me. I don't know. It just didn't quite feel like marriage. And I really think that the opposite of sex is not abstinence. I actually think the opposite of sex is negotiation. I think that is the opposite of sex. <laughs> you heard like, it here I'm first. I'm just like, do you never want intimacy? Argue about the dishwasher like that. I, I would go so far as to say the opposite sex of sex is resentment. Yeah. No, yeah. totally. But I totally. think I could not agree with you more, Sarah. We should we should put. <laughs> you should. That's your next book right there. The opposite of sex is, is negotiation. 
No, I felt the same way. That's I was very Esther Perel. I was thinking yeah. to myself, well, you just won the major branding contest by publishing a thing in the New York exactly. Times. Exactly. You went nuclear. <laughs> you, That's right. oh there's God. nothing he, you, you, yeah. Um, what else, uh, what else did you guys think? I mean, is, do you ever deal with this in your own marriage, RJ? Yeah, it, it hit way, way, way too close to home for me. Um, but I also felt very thankful in that my wife is a, oh, is a lot more compassionate, I think, than the author of this particular piece. And we've talked a lot about it. And I think what we've realized is that a lot of the time when I draw attention to things that I've done, it's A, out of like a, a real need for encouragement, you know, I know we're going to talk about sort of personality traits later on, but one, you know, we may not discuss are the, you know, the five love languages and how do you receive affection? And I'm definitely a words of affirmation kind of person, you know, for people that subscribe to that way of thinking. And so I just need lots of encouragement. I, and and it, so much so that when I encourage my wife about something, because she doesn't really care what I think about her, um, it's not her love language. She'll turn to me and she'll be like, oh, honey, uh, do you need some encouragement right now? Is that why you're encouraging me? <laughs> you know. So it's my need for encouragement. But then it's also sometimes my feelings of guilt that I'm not doing enough, You know, mm-hmm. that I'm not as present as I should be. And so then when I do do something, it's like, oh, look, look I'm, I'm, I am good. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm doing my best here. Mm-hmm. So I'm just thankful for a wife that is uh, a little more understanding and, and encouraging. The other thought I had... Uh, vis-a-vis children, which Sarah, you already alluded to this, which was brilliant, is just how true that was. And it, it reminded me of a good friend of mine who he and his wife are both art history professors. And as part of their job, they led a uh, sort of river cruise in Europe about a month ago, and they left their two boys at home <clears throat> with family. They're sort of two kind of middle school, high school age boys. And they got back and were like, how was it? And they were like, it was amazing. Like, it is incredible how well we get along when our children aren't around <laughs> and and how much conflict. We love our children. Don't get me wrong. We love our Course, children. yeah. But raising children just brings so much conflict and decision-making and um, differing opinions about how to deal with things and just stress into mm-hmm. our relationship. And it was amazing how, like, it's like, oh, yeah, th- this is why we got married. Like, we're really good together. And we forget that sometimes because we're so consumed with the children, which just highlights the need for, you know, married people to get away from their kids every so often. And, and that's been brought uh, really to home in our marriage because our littlest, again, Marshall, uh, you know, Dave, just started preschool two weeks ago. And it has been revolutionary to have him in school, you know, five or six hours a day, five days a week. It's like, mm-hmm. finally, we have some breathing space in our life. And we'll remember, I mean, we, we love him to death. Um, but we're like, oh, yeah, we, we work really well when it's just the two of us. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought that was very insightful and true. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm nailed to the wall because just last night I was, <laughs> I, I was telling Kate about something I had done in the house that was, I mean, I was, I was doing laundry and I was, I was folding it and I was sort of mentioning it. And it wasn't this, you know, she phrases it as this narrative about men doing more domestic work, which it could be. But I also, my father also used to sort of tell people when he'd done the dishes, you know, I, I don't know if it's a male-female thing, but I do know that I... Um, I also kind of need a little bit of the pat on the back. Like that's, that's what I'm looking for. And, um, 
but then she, she, she uh, I think the other person, my, my poor long suffering wife will hear that as like, you're making me feel guilty for not doing more. And, yes. but you get into this scorekeeping thing in a relationship and to sometimes these quote unquote egalitarian marriages, what you're basically saying, I think you you're the one who's, who actually was the first person to talk to me about this RJ was this, this 50, 50 ideal, um, it, everyone always feels like they're doing more than 50%. Like the, every, every study has always shown that both men and women feel they're doing more than what they, sh- what they sort of signed up for, even if those are socially defined in slightly different ways. But, um, you know, when, when, when we do premarital counseling, we talk about it's not really 50-50, it's 100-100. And yes. at least that's what grace in marriage says. Absolutely. I know that can be an excuse, but sorry, what were you saying? Well, I mean, I, d- I think it would be remiss to, to just say, you know, in studies, people feel like they're doing more because in studies, we do know that women do more. I mean, that's just a fact. You know, women have the second shift. They come home from working all day and then they do this whole other thing. Um, you know, I don't know how that works out in other people's marriage. In my own marriage, I well, I'm married to a guy that has a ton of night meetings. <laughs> just just this week, we've got three, you know, three nights that I'm putting the kids to bed by myself. But I also know that means he's running a really intense meeting and I know that that means you know he came home last night at you know 9 30 and was out like moving the recycling to the road um I I don't know like I feel like you have to find your own narrative of grace in the context of your specific marriage and your own um sort of just refusal to keep score I mean that's kind of like where um I can't remember the passage. We were doing a study on uh, Paul's epistles at church a couple weeks ago, and someone had this really interesting translation. Gosh, I can't remember what the passage was, but it was about sort of encouraging Christians to to not um, maybe not be jealous and and you know early Christians. And this woman's really interesting text was like, "This is an active thing, like it's a refusal." Mm. Um, and I do think there's a certain amount of action involved in like, ha- you know, you have those thoughts where you're like, I mean, I have this as a woman or I'm like, I'm so tired and I'm putting the kids to bed or there's so much laundry or whatever. And what is he doing? And I'm just like, nah, like I'm, I can't like, why? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I mean, that's why we read this and we expect them to be divorced. Cause like it's become such a, obviously such an overarching theme in their marriage. And that only leads to death. Right. I mean, that, I, that never, I, it just never leads anywhere good. Um, and I know you were, we were going to kind of connect this a bit to the the piece that um, Michael Sansbury wrote about the piece from the New York Times, you know, that came out a couple of years ago that said that, um, you know, there's research that people who fell, correct me if I'm wrong, David, but it's kind of like people who fell along more traditional um, domestic lines in terms of women doing more stuff at home had more sex is that kind of the i think that's basically the, the gist the, of the it inconvenient finding yeah and it's it, that i've brought that study up at a couple of different like if i do women's groups or um i don't know talks or whatever and it it like makes people live it <laughs> it's really interesting i'm shocked sarah because people that really that we we really especially these days want to think about marriage as being this egalitarian effort and i think and honestly i actually think it is right i think it is i just think we're so consumed with our own narrative of how like we've been done wrong and we're working so hard that we can't see it well what you're yeah i mean what you're saying i think what i'm hearing is that the once you get into egalitarian 
is not, at least in my mind, it's not meant to be a euphemism for, um, uh, you know, accounting. Right. And um, once you and once you get into accounting, then you get into entitlement, and once you get into entitlement, you get into resentment. Whether that that goes in and any marriage, I've never met a marriage where there's not resentment along mm-hmm. the lines of entitlement. In no matter what they politically believe, no matter what kind of marriage they're modeling themselves on, and so clearly that sort of rights kind of talk, it may work in society when it comes to love. Um, you know, you, we all, what is it? You know, we, we love those who've loved us. We, we, we're more willing to do a hundred percent of the, uh, the, the domestic work when we think that the person wants to give, we would jump in front of a bus for us, you know, yes. uh, there's, that's just how it works no matter who you are. But I also find that what, what's interesting partly about this is it leads into our next article about the tyranny of personality testing. There's a new book out by Merv Emre. Uh, she wrote a book called The Personality Brokers, which profiles uh, Catherine Cooks Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers, who came up with the Myers Briggs uh, test or indica- personality indicator. And it turns out it was it was concocted by Isabel Briggs Myers, the daughter, um, after she got married. Because she said there ought to be some highly intelligent division of labor that can be worked out so that everybody works but not at the wrong things. And what she was talking about was specifically in her marriage. It was the first year of her marriage. She was trying to figure out men and women's respective roles in a successful marriage, not about waged work, but it quickly morphed into that. You know, um, Emre uh, credits, this is where we're, I'm sort of talking about an article that was written by J.C. Pan in the New Republic about this book, but the book's been covered everywhere, clearly struck a nerve, uh, refers to these two ladies as being among the first to perceive how hungry uh, the masses were for simple self-affirming answers to the problem of self-knowledge. Uh, yet the, the longing uh, for that benevolent yet useful form of people sorting that Isabel found uh, specifically in her marriage, spurred the invention of this Myers-Briggs test. And it's based on Carl Jung's binaries of extroverted versus introverted, intuitive versus sensing, thinking versus feeling. Um, and it was Isabel who, again, who pioneered it. And it's now used, they said, by 88 of the Fortune 100 companies. Um, so for Isabel, Emre writes, the idea was not to accept work as a grim reality, um, but to set up the ideological conditions under which one would bind oneself to it freely and gladly, to a point of pride and a source of self-validation. And this relentless positivity persists today. There's an insistence among uh, people who love Myers-Briggs that it not be called a test, but rather an indicator that contains no wrong answers. Um, but the author asks, how many of the two million annual test takers are actually seeking self-knowledge? According to one estimate, up to 70% of Americans have taken a personality test as part of a job application, which suggests that there's something coercive going on here, and it's a $500 million personality testing industry. Even questions that seem innocuous, such as, at parties, do you A, stay late with increasing energy, or B, leave early with decreased energy, come with a slight edge when it's an employer who's asking? Does staying late make you look irresponsible? Does leaving early suggest a reluctance to put in long hours on the job? While personality tests promise to help you find the best work to suit your personality, they also hint that showing that personality in a flattering light will be necessary if you want to find and keep a job. Though this pressure to conform is likely not 
What Catherine Cook Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers envisioned for their creation, it's not wholly unexpected outcome of their penchant for people sorting. What Ethan wrote in last week's Weekender, he said that the takeaway is that while personality tests often deliver a language of understanding, um, when it is used within the confines of becoming something more, more productive, more marketable, more liked, the personality becomes one more ruling on who you ought to be. Now, um, have you guys taken the Myers-Briggs? Uh, yeah. Have I been to seminary in the Episcopal Church? <laughs> Am I a Christian? <laughs> <laughs> well, you should take the Enneagram then, RJ. It's the Christian horoscope. That's no, what they say. No, man, you've got to take the Enneagram. Have you taken it, RJ? We all tried to get you to. Did you do it? I only haven't because I know how badly you dude, want me to. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have time. I got home. I had. I was working late last <laughs> night, and I'm like, I'm not taking Instagram right now. I don't want to hear that. Well, what, what what are what do you guys remember? What uh, types you are? Because I am an uh, ENFJ. I think I am an so I, judgy. <laughs> I'm an INFJ. So I'm judgy. INFJ. Yeah. I'm an ENFP. So there. ENFP. But we're all NFs. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, NFs. That NFs. Makes sense. N that means makes a lot intuition. See, there you go. A feeling. It's true. We're all, it's we're all, all true. Feelers. <laughs> Sarah and I tend to judge, whereas you turn to just perceive. Um, Ooh, exactly. that's true. Yeah. Actually, well, do I'll you? come into. I'll roll into RJ's office and be like, "What's happening?" And RJ will be like, "That's interesting." And then I'm like, <laughs> "I need you to meet my rage with rage." So, well, but yeah, it is yeah. what what I think Ethan was trying to draw out, and what they 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 mentioned is that it, there's a there's no science behind at least the uh, Myers Briggs, and that it immediately when you pronounce a judgment on someone, a category, and that's what a category is, that's the law, it categorizes us. Uh, it immediately becomes something uh, a judgment on what you're not on on what sort of where you're failing. And I know that you know there, that there's there's you know there's last couple of years there was a. Um, a t- great TED talk about sort of the benefits of being an introvert. But the reason that existed was because it was sort of implied that being introverted is worse than being extroverted or that thinking is better than feeling or feeling is better than thinking. There, we, we attach value judgments. I don't know exactly which value judgments we attach, but uh, I, isn't it, immediate, it immediately becomes a box that we want to get out of. Dave, I have to say that has not been entirely my experience. And, and whether or not I believe in Myers-Briggs or Enneagram or love language or whatever it might be, I think one positive thing about them is at least it gets into people's minds that other people with whom they have relationships may not be totally free agents, you know, that they may not have quite as much control over how they act and, and who they are as we like to believe. And in so much as that's what it accomplishes, it actually creates a, a space for compassion. Oh, yeah. You know, to the degree that the Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. creates a space where you can say, okay, I don't, you know, I wouldn't do things that way. And maybe I find that slightly off-putting, but I also understand, like, that's that's who this person is, you know, and I'm not going to uh, judge them for being who they are and expect them necessarily to be like me or to see the world the way, the way that I see the world or to process things the way that I process them, then I think that's actually helpful. Sure. Right? That's That, that, that goes hand in hand with what we talk about, the, the bondage of the will. Yeah. You know, that people aren't as, as free as they would like to believe they are. Um, and, and I remember the, the moment about 15, 20 years ago when my wife and I sort of discovered this doctrine, you know, if you want to call it doctrine of the bondage of the will, that people aren't free. And we sort of did a little thought experiment. We said, okay, what would it look like if we started to see other people as not being free, but as being bound? 
And what we discovered is it gave us a tremendous amount of compassion for them. Because rather than looking at them and saying, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Why aren't you more like me? It'd be like, well, you know, they're just dealing with their own stuff, just like I am. It, you know, Sarah and I went to this amazing lunch yesterday with this woman who founded a community called uh, Brookwood, which is a residential community, lifelong residential community for people who have severe um, autism. Uh, that, that's right, Sarah. Am I describing mm-hmm. it correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was amazing. Of course, she got it. She's 90 years old. She got into this work because she, she had a daughter who, when she was one, um, got mumps, which um, irretrievably damaged her brain, basically, this daughter of hers. And then she was looking for a way to give her daughter a, a productive, meaningful life. But one thing she said, which was so profound, was, you know, we're all a problem. Every yes. single one of us is a problem. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, that's what these personality tests do. They say, okay, there, yes, there's some things that are beautiful and wonderful about you, and there's some things that are a problem. Mm-hmm. And it, maybe it's good for you to be, at le- even if it's not, doesn't totally accurately diagnose the problem, for you to have some awareness that you are a problem and for other people to know that about you, I think there's something kind of helpful yeah. about that. Because again, it creates a space for for grace, compassion, mercy, acceptance, rather than necessarily, you know, you you just should have the power within yourself to be different than you are. Mm. Um, mm. So that's that was that's my take a little bit, which is maybe it's too you know Every, too perceived. Sam Shoemaker said everyone uh, has a problem, is a problem, or lives with a problem. Mm. <laughs> all three. What about you? I say Sarah? probably all three all the time. <laughs> Uh, we, I love the Enneagram and I like it more than Myers-Briggs because the Enneagram is a bit more brutal and what it tells you about yourself that is not good. And um, I always need that in my life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for for in my marriage, actually, the Enneagram, this episode's like all about marriage. The Enneagram has been amazing because when I realized the type that my husband was and that because he took the test and the type that I am like. And you, you actually can look and sort of research how those types interact. It was like us to a T and it was mm. kind of creepy, but it has given me like Josh is a seven, sevens love. Um, ex- they're called the experiencer. They love things to be fun. They love challenges. They love like visioning things. And I'm so like, um, and I'm a three, I'm an achiever. I want to look good at all times, which means I'm not going to take big risks. Um, I'm always going to be obsessed with like things, um, with, with the people's perceptions of me being positive, you know what I mean? And so it's really interesting to do ministry together and to watch him take these like huge risks at his church. And I'm like hype. I'm like literally on the sidelines with a bag, like breathing into it. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe he's doing this. Like everyone's going to see us fail, you know? And, um, and sometimes we do fail and then sometimes things don't. And it's like kind of amazing to be married to somebody that just like does it. Um, what's your, it, it kind of pushes, pushes me in an interesting way. Um, but yeah, I, I remember reading, uh, and I haven't read the book, but um, I read a little bit. Richard Rohr did a book about the Enneagram, and he like spiritually typed people. Mm-hmm. And Josh's type, I think, is St. Francis. It's like a very like, you know, I mean, in St. Francis in the modern way we think about St. Francis, right? Like as being like this like out there in the world, like experiencing it, like, you know. Josh doing... lives naked in the woods. Basically. <laughs> and... And a three was um, Dorothy Day, who started the Catholic Worker Movement. And I'm like, we have the worst marriage ever. Like, St. Francis and Dorothy Day is like, 
you know, they're not going to meet on Tinder. So um, anyway, <laughs> so. Sarah, what's your what's your what's your wing? Uh, two. Yeah. Two. And like everyone at Mockingbird, like all the men at Mockingbird this are why two, never, right? This is like why you're I all never two. No, I, 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 I finally took it and I, I actually got the right answer. I, I f- finally figured out what I am. I'm a three wing four, which oh, makes a whole lot more sense. It makes me feel a whole lot less flattered, frankly. Um, when you say wing, yeah, it no, makes me think th- of Top Gun. It makes <laughs> you think about what? Top Gun? Yeah, you can be my wingman anytime. What wing are Ice. you? <laughs> well, you know, she in in the article that J C Pan writes in the New Republic, she does interview people that have experienced uh, the Myers Briggs or personality test as basically gospel as opposed to law it's sort of what you talk about rj i mean they've said it's such a relief to get this uh, yeah. to finally hear oh this is why i'm like this this is why my husband and i have this problem or this is why you know i gravitate towards such a substance and i think you can experience it that way especially if like self-knowledge has been just denied you or it's been vilified in your life but then it can yeah. also when it becomes a tool for production it can become a new um a, a debilitating law, I think. I really do think it can it can experience both ways. So they're not like I don't think they're good or bad. And I too, Sarah, I much prefer the Enneagram to the Myers Briggs because um, it it tells you what your liabilities are. I mean, it it, it does. It, I mean, one of my favorite things to do if I'm like in the thick of having to like make a hard decision at work is or in my personal life with my kids or marriage or whatever is to go to the Enneagram Institute website. We're all in. It's a cult, RJ. But I'll look. They have this like one to not nine levels. Like so, this is a three. It is at your healthiest, and this is a three at the least healthy. And I will read these because like it like so you're an unhealthy three is you guys are going to be like, she's a psycho and I am is um, devious and deceptive so that their mistakes and wrongdoings will not be exposed. Untrustworthy, maliciously betraying or sabotaging people to triumph over them. Delusionally jealous of others. Yes, that's me like at my worst. And like, it's helpful. I know it sounds crazy, but it's helpful to read that. Is that true? Oh, a hundred percent true. Like, ask me how middle school was. I was terrifying. You know Remind what I mean? Me to like, never tell you anything ever again. Exactly. But at my best, so I re- I'll read the best stuff like self-accepting, interdirected, authentic, everything they seem to be, modest and charitable, self-deprecatory humor, and a fullness of heart emerge, gentle and benevolent. So it's like, mm. it's help. That's helpful for me. The good you know? and the bad. So. The good and the bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. speaking of the good and the bad guys, we're gonna um. We're going to end uh, with the, the final um, incredible article that appeared in The New Yorker uh, by Kelifa Sana uh, called The Unlikely Endurance of Christian Rock. Christian Rock. Yes. I don't think we've ever talked Christian Rock on here. He, uh, he, You're a huge fan, Dave. Well, it depends on what you mean by Christian Rock. And I think that he does quote at the beginning the great king of the hill um, – the, the cartoon, the Mike Judge cartoon, where Hank Hill, the um, the Texan, is confronted with a guitar-wielding pastor and delivers an unsparing judgment. He says, you're not making Christianity better. You're making <laughs> rock and roll worse. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's certainly the how I view much of it. Um, but let me um, let me read it's for, from Kelofa. Um Despite decades of mockery, Christian rock has proven remarkably durable, creating a lucrative and sometimes lively cultural ecosystem, which generations of musicians have been happy or happy enough to call home. 
And then he goes on to, you know, uh, talk about Larry Norman, the great sort of the godfather of Christian rock, even though he would have hated that term. And, and Greg Thornberry's wonderful new um, biography that people should all pick up. It's a really good book. Um, like many rock stars of his generation, Norman... Uh, Larry Norman was proudly anti-establishment, which meant that the increasing popularity of his chosen field presented something of an existential crisis. By the 1980s, Norman had grown contemptuous of the Christian music business that had sprung up in his wake. Norman hated the idea that his faith should dictate or limit his subject matter. He once said that because he was a Christian, all of his songs were necessarily Christian songs, no matter what they were about. So then you ask, well, what counts as Christian music? And this is the great question. In gospel music, form and content are joined. The term denotes both a style and a message, leaving no room for theological ambiguity. Likewise, the sound of 70s Christian pop was warm and sweet, designed to reinforce the hopeful spirit of the words. But in the 80s, many Christian rock bands embraced snarling guitars, which were harder to interpret, and they, of course, reference Striper and To Hell with the Devil. And as some band that has a, has a song called Good God, God Good, Devil Bad, uh, sort of boils it right down for you. Uh, some Christian brands found that the obsession with lyrics gave them freedom, that they could pretty much uh, make whatever noise they wanted as long as the words were sufficiently joyful. But do Christian bands have a propaganda problem? And this is where I've, I've got, got sort of uh, close to the bone. Um, it is certainly true that most Christian rock bands were obliged to follow doctrinal rules, but these bands weren't necessarily much different from the many secular bands that wrote protest songs. In the history of rock, furious conviction has been neither rare nor necessary nor necessarily unhelpful. There is no easy way to distinguish between a musician who spouts prepackaged doctrine and one who boldly stands up for what is right. So, there's more to say, but Christian Rock, um, what, uh, wh where are you guys with it? RJ, I feel like this is going to be more your wheelhouse. <laughs> Why do you say that? Um, I don't. Because I've do heard not, well, you sing the Great Litany at St. Martin's, and you have that oh, voice, man. Oh, because I man. sing. Oh, because I sing. No, but you have uh, that. Like you can <clears throat> make it a little edgy if you wanted to. You know. Yeah, you can I've, listen to I've some of the emotions. stuff. I've right? gone through. I've definitely gone through like you know jars of clay phases yeah. in my life. But uh, you know, Christian rock is is strange because it's uh, oftentimes this uncomfortable mixing of the the reverent and the irreverent right that that rock and roll sort of by its nature is is irreverent but but um christianity when it's uh conveyed in a certain kind of way is supposed to be supposed to be reverent and kind of um you know easy and peaceful and hopeful and 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 maybe not entirely honest you know isn't that what bono said that that he never you know the problem with christian music is that it, does, it doesn't tell the truth about uh. the the human condition it sort of glosses over everything and um in that quote you know talked about uh prepackaged doctrine as opposed to telling the truth but it doesn't seem like jesus ever had a problem with telling the truth or paul had a problem with telling the truth so i don't think the problem with christian rock is um it's because it's it, again it's christianity miss uh, misinterpreted or misproclaimed as being something that that always has to be uh, sort of bubblegum and and uh, glossed over and dishonest and you know I think there is tremendous hope in telling the truth about the human condition and pointing uh, to the only hope we have in Jesus but when you start uh, making it all saccharine then it just gets oppressive and kind of icky mm. you know and that's why I think this is what Mockingbird is all about right that we're about is 
uh, sort of all truth is God's truth. And, and wherever we find the truth, whether it's in Christian culture or so, so-called quote-unquote secular culture, we point it out and we say, yes, this is true, and this is what Jesus talked about, this is what the Bible talked about, and we don't sort of segment things into uh, sacred and secular, mm. because there's sort of no, you know, we think those categories are inaccurate. Is that fair to say? Totally, mm-hmm. totally. So those are my thoughts. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I sort of plead ignorance on a lot of this. This wasn't, I mean, I went to, you know, Episcopal youth group when I was a kid, which was just a lot of listening to, um, I don't know, rap music and playing spin the bottle. Um, and so like, I didn't really have a lot of experience with this kind of music as a teenager. Um, the limited experience I do have, which I hesitate to say uh, there was a guy that I was like totally had a crush on. One of my friends was like, you should come to church with me. So I was like, you know, ignorant, ignorant. I was like, sure. And it was like a youth service. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I walked in and there was like smoke machines and like a rock and roll band. And there was this guy who was a drummer. And I was like, you know, a junior or senior in high school, totally enamored. And thinking like he's a musician, like this is so cool. He's a drummer, you know, like he's gonna be really edgy. And then like when we dated, I was like, this is not what I anticipated. You know what I mean? Because he was like so in this world um, of purity culture and of like, you know, praising God in a way that like was not what I had experienced at all. Yeah, and then we broke up, and then the last I heard, he was, like, under arrest, uh, house arrest for possession, which I always felt guilty of, that I had somehow had that effect on him or something, so that's, like... <laughs> well, they also... That's s- sort of... That's a great story. <laughs> it's sort of... You want to hear the worst? The worst The worst part of it, I shouldn't... Okay, so the worst part of it, feel free to cut this, please. They had bowling night, you know, I mean, this is youth group in Mississippi, right, with Baptist Church, so they had bowling night, and... So that was like a really exciting thing. And it was um, Blacklight Night. Have you guys ever been to Blacklight Night at the bowling alley? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So, Every night, it seems like, is Black Night. Again, the- are we Christians? <laughs> so, right. Okay. So I had never been, but this was a big deal for them. So before we went in, we made out in the car. Dave, I feel like I've told this story before. We made out in the car um, and, you know, just kissing. But we walked in and the unfortunate thing was I had on a lot of lip gloss and it had just gotten all over both of our faces. And then we walked in and the drummer of the praise band at the Baptist church was like glowing on his face. Looked like the Joker. Yeah. (laughs) So I just wasn't, that wasn't my scene. Oh gosh. I mean, I've got a, I've got, that's a Great story. I, you've not told it before, Sarah. That's in, um, Sarah Conding, def- defiling evangelical since <laughs> 1985. <laughs> oh my um, God, it's terrible. I have I have a sort of complicated relationship with Christian rock because I like I like a lot of it, and um, I think Jars of Clay, by the way, is pretty great. Um, I found that I any time you get a genre of music that you've sort of dismissed wholeheartedly, um, it's like a it's almost like a challenge it, to your mind. Are you, are you how how open minded are you going to be? Um, and like I almost find That's it wise. interesting to like find the good thing in it. And you know I like some of those early Larry Norman records. The production's awesome. And I you know one of my favorite records uh, is Tommy James of the Shondells. He did that record uh, Christian of the World which is like 1971 it's very early it's not really christian rock because it's kind of it's very jesus people though and um 
But then, you know, a couple of years ago, I kept reading these articles about John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats. Do you guys know who that is? He's, just, mm-hmm. he's, he's a novelist. He's uh, an incredible musician and a very sort of... You're so beyond our knowledge right well, now, he's Dave, sort of You're going he, to a totally different place. I love he's it. He's this kind of edgy Catholic guy who's very literary and cool, very lo-fi, and has got this cult around him almost. And in interviews, he would always talk about his very favorite record was Amy Grant's Lead Me On. And he would say, he wouldn't say it, he would say like, people think I'm kidding or I'm trying to be arch or uh, hip by saying that. I actually really, really love that record. So I finally got it. And you know what? It's amazing. It's an incredible record. I love it. It's a totally, um, um, you know, I think it's true to the faith. It's all the best parts of that kind of culture. And it's got a Jimmy Webb song on there. I'm obsessed with Jimmy Webb. But mainly I really love the first song, 1974, which is about her conversion. And it's, it's beautiful. And Amy was sort of in charge of her music at that point. It's well produced. So that was really uh, eye-opening to me. I think that the deeper um, question is like, if there's a predefined message or prepackaged message or you there's no freedom to actually explore uh, in your lyrics then does that diminish the art and today I would say that the way that a lot of the political messages a lot of a lot of uh, artists feel um, like if they get called out if they're not taking political stands in their music, and yet it all seems to be quite prepackaged from where I'm sitting. It's very like mm. I know what they're going to say. It's not like it's news to yeah. anyone that they've got sort of progressive views about X, Y, or Z. And so it the the doctrinaire, the dogmat dogmatism has sort of shifted in a funny way. Um, so hashtag seculosity. Hashtag seculosity. Um, I I do. I want to say like I, when I was in high school, someone you know I'd listen to some of this music and a lot of what RJ was saying about it sort of being saccharine and also um, you know I think I think we have to say a lot of this music feels like what we need to do for God like how I'm worshiping you know, like I'm here worshiping you like you got to talk about what you're doing and that was always very um, it just felt very false to me like I couldn't and not that it is false but it felt very false to me and I don't know that we call this rock and roll maybe we do but um, somebody had me listen to third days don't you know I'll always love you mm-hmm. and I can hardly talk about that song without crying because it was the first time i remember hearing the gospel and music do you guys know this song i don't okay so do we the, have a spot do, do we have a mockingbird spotify account i'm sort of feeling like we should have we do one if we don't. yeah I, I could probably i should probably put together a so, christian rock playlist just like the amazing. chorus on this is so good don't you know i've always loved you even before there was time though you turn away i'll tell you still don't you know i've always loved you and i always will like i can remember hearing that the first time and being like oh my god like you know it, it was like a, a whole different way of hearing about god so you know i don't think that this music is i th- i mean i think you guys are right it has a lot of value it's just um if it, it when it becomes this pelagian thing that's just yeah. straight up i'm gonna do this right. for job god i right. vow to always do this stuff and you're like well that's not that is as rj said that's not really telling the truth or right. when it becomes this sort of you just can't sing this juvenile what i would say like you know the south park version of where cartman takes he wants to become a christian rock star so he just takes these like absurdly sort of romantic and sexual songs and just substitutes instead of baby it's jesus and yeah. like <laughs> anytime you're in that territory it's uncomfortable yeah. but amy grant isn't like that remotely amy i've amazing. very rarely heard any jars of clay songs 
songs that fit that. There are worship songs that are like this. And you know what? I will say that what's strange is that Jesus is my boyfriend. Songs. The guy from the New Yorker what? decided what? not to touch on Hillsong at all. And those are that they, they have basically created a they've kind of a cold play uh, yeah. eyes or Ed Sheeran eyes the entire Christian music. And every five seconds they've got a new record coming out. And I have a feeling if I dug that deep into that, I, we would find some great, authentic, wonderful stuff. We'd also probably find a whole lot of um, overly romanticized and uh, slightly Pelagian kind of stuff. So, Ooh, I was going to say hullabaloo. I like what you said. Well, they're aspirational <laughs> songs, right? They're, aspirational. I, I, wish, I wish that I was right. like this. I wish that yeah. I could be like this, that I could yeah. sing this honestly. But if you're telling the truth, or like right. you've gotten, you know, you've yelled at your kids on the way to church in the morning right. or in the car as you're listening. <laughs> and then you're like, like, come on, kids, we will, you know, <laughs> let us praise, you know. <laughs> You have a lovely singing voice, by the way. Aren't you an alto? I feel like we've done a little quartet at St. Martin's before for Thanksgiving service. Oh, Sarah. gosh. We Maybe have. we should record a song. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Well, yeah. people don't know this, but RJ has been known to break into full singing in a uh, in a... In, in the middle of a sermon, at least I've been present for such a thing. And RJ, maybe do you? That's my wife's favorite thing, especially early in the morning we, before she's had a cup of coffee. She's like, "You better shut up right now." Okay. <laughs> RJ, RJ, to close this out, will you give us like the benediction song or some kind of um, Ooh, hit it, uh, doxology? Come on, give it to us. Oh my gosh, what what? That's on what, the what night. What am I supposed to say to? What am I supposed to do to that? Wait, let me think for a sec. Give us a real one. Give us one. Give us one like uh, one of the ones you used to do at St. Paul's. Oh, oh my gosh! Do it, do it, do it! So I'm not doing that. <laughs> Can you just do praise God from whom all blessings flow? Can you do that? All right, sure. Ready? All right, here we go. <laughs> praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I told y'all, it's like a little bit rock and roll. No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Oh my God, he can't put that on. Yes, you are totally putting that on. on. I feel, honestly, I feel blessed. Uh, And I feel, uh, thank you, grateful to both of you for being on the cast. And uh, just want to say we'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.